You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Well, the world really does seem to be full of angry men at the moment, doesn't it? Angry men in Paris, angry men in the Liberal Party here and the Republic Party in the US. Angry because the world's changing and they can't control it. Angry because they're offered hope and possibility but can't seem any way of actually getting it. Angry men here in Australia on the roads and in our homes. Get out of my way, hey, do you delay me for five seconds? I'm going to run you over on your bike. Well, here on Radiotherapy we're offering an alternative. We're not getting angry. We're not promising revenge or death. Instead, this is an hour to ask why and what's the matter. An hour to be thoughtful, an hour of radiotherapy. Stop what you're doing, sit down and make yourself comfortable for the next hour. We've got a special guest, Helen Stevens, maternal child health nurse, who will tell us how to get your baby sleeping like a baby. Very interesting <laughs> term, that one. We've got Dr Mellis, who'll talk to us about trauma. And we've got the very special Dr Perry Partham, who'll tell us about what a Marseille conference actually is and then tell us what quarter eye there. And more importantly, we've got Kent working quietly and efficiently in the background to um, keep the dead air at bay. And, um, Mellis, we've actually got people on the panel today, oh, not yeah, just you. Talk about trauma. I, I came today with trepidation of who's going to turn up after last month's effort. And thank you to Bron and Shane from last month. They, they were lifesavers. And Kent, I just can't thank enough because under the ordeal, and it was a, an extreme situation, first time in 20 yes, years. Yes, people who weren't listening, what happened? Well, it's what didn't happen. <laughs> For the first time in 20 years, um, the dear colleagues and co-panellists were away, uh, locked out on, on the front door. And Kent, ever smiling and calm, took it like uh, it was a normal day. So just looking over to Kent, I thought, oh, well, all is not lost. And then our two co-hosts from uh, Marinara and uh, Science of Go-Go came to the rescue and uh, we carried off the day as a foursome. So it was, it was called improv radio. It was the <laughs> ultimate. <laughs> so seeing everyone here today, I'm just <laughs> beaming. My cortisol levels just gone down. My adrenals have gone back to normal size, and my heart beats to the normal 160. <laughs> 160. <laughs> well, I'm a bit over uh, agitated as usual. <laughs> but <laughs> Perry Panham, good morning. Good morning. Uh, what's caught your eye recently? Well, I went to the Marseille conference in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago, which, if people don't know about it, is a massive conference about perinatal mental health, which is attended by people from all backgrounds, so um, people with lived experience. And, in fact, we had a really amazing and powerful presentation from a woman who had experienced postpartum psychosis um, at that conference. Marseille conference, what is it? What's a Marseille Oh, now that's a question I don't know the answer to. I just go along, but I don't know what it's from. I think Helen might know the answer, though. Helen Stevens, good morning. <laughs> good morning to you. And I don't know the answer. Oh, you looked so excited. I was sure that you knew the answer. Luckily, I do. Oh, <laughs> this is called a setup, isn't it? <laughs> Never ask a question when you don't know the answer. <laughs> Very sensible principle. What is a Marseille? Marseille is named after a, a French dude, a doctor called Dr. Marseille. I don't know what his first name was, but. Uh, he was the first person to describe postpartum psychosis. Oh, so highly appropriate presentation then. So she was really inspiring um, and her story obviously had a very happy ending, which was great to see. 
but there's also lots of other people who attend the conference. There's midwives and maternal child health nurses and social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists and um, and mental health nurses. And so we all get together and talk about the future and, and what's possible, which is a really energising thing to do because of so much of the time we spend talking about the things that are deficient and wrong and I rather than having another conversation about you know the fact that it's 2015 and we don't have a social worker on the mother baby unit where I work and those sorts of conversations we're having lots of conversations about what might be possible in the future and how we can change things for the better so I, I had a great time and I'd love to talk about some of the things that that I heard about at the conference. Um, so tell us a bit about that uh, conference. Okay, so there were... I, I can't tell you everything about the conference because I would probably be here all day, but I suppose I've chosen the things that I found really interesting and that I'm still thinking about three weeks later. So it's a very subjective take on that conference. The first thing that I thought was really important was the focus on dads, uh, which I think has become more and more of a focus of our interest over the past few years and needs to continue, I think, to become as important, I think, as, as the other people in, in the family unit. And there were a couple of uh, different presentations um, focusing on, uh, firstly, uh, fathers and bonding and attachment to their infants and what... what uh, determines that attach the quality of that attachment and, and how we can help foster that attachment. And in fact, there was some research that suggested that it was the quality of the relationship between the father and the mother, which then determined the quality of the attachment to the baby uh, for the father. And I think that's a very important thing that we need to consider all the different relationships in this very complicated little family unit. Rather than the traditional medical model of just having a patient. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly being, right. Being one person. Yes, indeed. And uh, following on from that, there was some more research which sort of looked at the longer-term downstream effects if, if dads don't develop a good bond with their babies and the effect then on kids who are actually, you know, in their late childhood and entering adolescence and more evidence that they have quite um, significant consequences in terms of their behavioural and their emotional regulation. So, uh, well, I suppose. What, what sort of problems? So, there's a lot of established research that suggests that there's a bit of um, an association between poor bonding with fathers and, and paternal postpartum depression, and then the development in kids and teenagers of oppositional behaviours and conduct problems. Uh, and this angry men angry young men yes so i think that's um that's so important it's a really robust finding that's been shown over lots of different types of research and it was borne out again at this conference in this particular piece of research now now there's a, a lot of um single families or disrupted families these days how 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 might parents in those situations then actually help achieve a good outcome for their children well, I think um, the first step, I would say, is is validating and valuing that bond between the father and their child, I think, uh, and, and seeing that as a, an important primary purpose of any kind of therapy and support. So I think at the conference, because we were all talking quite a lot about trying to protect and support that family system, I think that that's, that's another, another thing to think about when that system is disrupted for lots of reasons. Yeah, who, who's left holding the baby? So, so, so the difficulty then for couples, particularly when the relationships become disrupted, is in separating their difficulties as a couple from their role as 
parents, co-parents of a child and supporting each other in the parental role, even though they want to throttle each other as individuals. Yes, that's right. And and I, I think that, although we didn't really phrase it that way at the conference, I must say. This is radio. <laughs> Reality radio for that. Yeah, so... so radio so, verite. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I can't comment any more about you know the whole issue of throttling. Why don't I move on? Why don't I move on to the next thing that I, I was interested in and leave that to you? Um, it's a visual medium, radio. Yeah, so it seems. Uh, and talk a little bit about built space because that was the other thing that I noticed in the conference. There was um, uh, not IKEA, presumably. No, well, no, but trying to use built space to foster uh, emotional connection and warmth, and particularly when families are under stress. So if they're in a mother-baby unit, for example, there were a couple of new mother-baby units that have been recently developed. There's one in West Australia and there's another one in South Australia and, and there were presentations on how to create a space that's conducive to therapy. And uh, that actually uh, um, was an interesting counterpoint to the one of the presentations actually from Professor Jayshri Kulkarni from Monash University who talked about how important it is to separate out a women's space in adult mental health services in the inpatient unit to protect women from lots of kinds of violence, either you know verbal or or other kinds of violence, and to try and make that space a, a safe space for them. And that's based in the whole history, I think, of institutional mental health care, where prior to um, the closure of all of those old asylums in the sort of in the 1980s in Victoria. Uh, there were m- women's wards and men's wards. And then when the the location of care moved into the community, uh, we still had the mainstreaming of adult mental health units in hospitals and they were mixed wards for the first time. And I think... But because, in fact, general hospitals have been mixed wards for a long time. Yeah, so I think there was a bit of a, a clash of, of cultures there and... and uh, I think over the time since the 1980s, it's become... It, well, in, in my experience, it's been a, a somewhat stressful environment for women to go into if they're unwell. Uh, and there has been a recognition that there are different needs for different populations in that environment. And so at the Alfred Hospital, they've actually created a women's wing where uh, there's a space for women to sit in a lounge and there's a courtyard that is, is just for women. And I think that's reduced a lot of... The anxiety that a lot of women feel in that environment. So, how do we manage that in the uh, perinatal mother-baby space, where we're trying to create a family space? Well, exactly. So, it was a sort of a, a very interesting juxtaposition of these different, very different needs, and how we accommodate those very different needs in these very different environments. So, mother-baby units have even by their very name implied that it's about the mother and the baby. Uh, and they've been set up in that way so that there's a space for the mother and a space for the baby and there are shared spaces uh, and I guess the whole focus of those inpatient units has been to promote warmth and calm and closeness so whereas in an adult mental health service you need sort of space and lines of sight uh, to ensure patient safety in a mother-baby unit you really need intimacy and closed spaces where people can feel private and, and unobserved so I think that um, 
there need to be changes in both of those environments, actually. I think that um, the built space in a mother-baby unit needs to change to accommodate the father. We were just talking about how important dads are and to make it a much more natural family environment where we do welcome all the members of the family. Which, in fact, includes older children as well. Well, that's often. right. That's right. Exactly. So, Sorry, a, Helen, you So requiring a, a child-friendly space is very different from the requirements to provide an adult or an infant-friendly space. Helen, you were going to say something. Yeah, my question is... um, Sorry. We're looking at mums and um, their spaces. What about dads, dad's space? Mm. If we have a mum's space, why wouldn't we have a dad's space? And then when do we get to same-sex couples and where we've and it really is something we have to consider because I think it's a it's a huge missing point well, from our history. Yeah, I think that's right. And even in trying to make the name of our unit more friendly to different types of families, calling it a mother-baby unit, I think excludes you know mm-hmm. other members of that family. And mm-hmm. yet we've been experimenting with different names and none of them sound right. So it's um, recently closed, but. Um Albert Road Clinic had a parent-infant unit for exactly that reason. Yes, and yet for me, and I'd be interested to hear what listeners think, and if they have a great name, please phone in and suggest it. But or, parent- or post on our Facebook, Facebook yeah, page. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Uh, but parent-infant sounds terribly clinical and a bit cold to me. Well, it sort of is clinical. It's a hospital. (laughs) I I don't want people to feel that it's going to be a clinical and cold environment. They're going there to feel better and and The friendly parent-infant unit. (laughs) What's wrong with the family unit? Well, uh, actually, that was my suggestion. But, in fact, another person in our organisation said that de-emphasises the baby. And we want to promote the importance of the baby in all of this. So words are very important here. And I think that we still haven't come up with the right combination. People who are listening can imagine how the debate went round and round and round for hours. <laughs> it really did. It really did. So um, to come back to the conference, uh, we, they were talking about how they designed the unit and some of the things they thought about and some of the things which were afterthoughts which they wished they'd thought about. And one of the things was the issues about noise and privacy, which are really important. And so the different materials that you would use to try and minimise chaos in an environment where people want to find stillness and calm. And the other thing was the the need for the nurse's station to be pretty a flexible space so that, you know, buggies and strollers can be brought in there so that children can be supervised to give parents a little bit of calm and time. So um, there were also other things like they've got a very spectacular garden which is really brightly lit at night, which is which is probably not what you want when you want no. to have a calm <laughs> night time. You're trying to get your baby to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I think when they opened this particular mother-baby unit, it is a beautiful unit, but there were some, some things which maybe they could it's have... designed for the architect, not for the occupants. Well, it was clearly designed by the architect, yes. <laughs> um, so, so I suppose built space and accommodating different ideas and how built space... Um, expresses how we're thinking about the needs of the people that we're going to look after. There's a fascinating corollary of this from the other end of the life scale, which is the elderly and residential care. And a professor uh, some months ago commented on the architecture of residential places for geriatric and old age people with dementia and how it's catered for the staff whereas he's innovated with architects to put a refrigerator and a kitchenette in the centre of the ward because most people, when they're at home and at midnight when they get up, they go to the fridge. That's normal. 
So to normalise the architecture, rather than having a nurse's station in the middle, which will totally disorient them, they put a kitchenette. And it has reduced the amount of disorientation phenomenally. Just a basic principle of transporting the home environment to the residential environment. And I wondered if this could be then called an infant-centred unit. Forget about who else. It's no, that's I think the centre. I think problem. you've solved my problem. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll take it to work and see what they think so, of it. So metaphorically, it's putting the infant at the centre of the not, unit. Well, not only metaphorically, literally, yes. everyone's gaze and thinking and mindfulness is about the sensory environment that is conducive for safety for the infant. Now, that's sound, sight, smell, very important. And indeed, whoever the people are who care and regulate the infant. So it is infant-centred metaphorically, but physically, sensorially and mindfully. So uh, three days of um, useless circular debate and we've sold it here on Radiotherapy in Look, about hey, three minutes. We are not just a radio <laughs> program, we're cutting edge. <laughs> No wonder you were doing the show on your own, Malice. You don't need any extra. No, no, I had scientists and marinara with me, and Kent was absolutely my environment for safety. <laughs> I was That was baby-centred in me. <laughs> which actually brings me on to... I'll speak very briefly about the third thing that I wanted to talk about, which was um, the biology of, of mm-hmm. parenting and attachment and uh, some research that they had presented, which... Uh, seems to be consistent with some research that has come out about autism recently that got a lot of press about oxytocin and how if children are administered oxytocin that their social responsiveness can improve. Yes, yeah. the love drug. Yeah, indeed. So so they, they used oxytocin in this experiment which um, was designed to induce <coughs> excuse me, stress in the mother. It's the still face experiment where the mother for a period of time is not allowed to respond... Um, with any kind of facial movement to her baby and that causes stress in the baby obviously and the baby tries to elicit a response you know getting a little bit more agitated over time and after a period of time the mother's allowed to relax her face and respond to the infant and they measured oxytocin levels before and after this experiment and the women who were able to uh, be appropriately responsive to their baby without being remote or being intrusive were the ones with a, a bigger surge of oxytocin in their blood after that experiment, which which was a stressful experience for them. So I suppose it just it reminds us all that there is some biology underlying all of these behaviours that we consider to be teachable and normal and that maybe we can employ biology to improve outcomes for... Yeah, it's not a case of either or. No, that's right. Exactly. We need to incorporate it. And then the final presentation, which I think um, is fascinating and is a bit of a a frontier in psychiatry, was about nutrients and and antenatal and postnatal mental health. So there's a professor at Melbourne University, Felice Jacker, who's been talking quite a lot about this sort of stuff. Uh, The idea that there are nutrients in our everyday food that can determine and promote mental health and uh, that's something that I've always been a little bit resistant to, that idea, but more and more the evidence seems to be accumulating that, in fact, it might be significant. So there were some things that she talked about in particular, um, and this was a position statement that she uh, um, published in The Lancet earlier this year, I think. They talked specifically about omega-3 and B vitamins, um, especially folate and B12, but also talked about choline and iron and zinc, and magnesium and S-adenosyl methionine, 
and vitamin D and amino acids. Just say that quickly, fuck. <laughs> I'm pleased that I managed to only say it once. So I, I think... Um, I mean, that's that's really interesting stuff. Most of the stuff that they've done is on a population basis, so very large-scale studies on the effects of these kinds of nutrients and the absence of them on mental health. But I think that they're going to try and drill down to the individual level and maybe they'll have some really useful suggestions. Interesting that you mentioned that because that will segue into mm-hmm. our uh, last catch-up topic. Different type of nutrient uh, caught my eye um, a week or so ago that was... Uh, published online um this idea of psychobiotics now we've been hearing more and more about the biome about the bacterial composition of our body after all bacteria make up 90 percent of the cells in our body and um we're realizing that um the the types of bacteria in our body actually have a bigger impact on our health than we realise. And there was an interesting study done that looked at this idea of a psychobiotic. And there was a small study done um, using one particular strain, not the Dr Sharota strain, but a uh, bifidobacterium longum, which is is a similar bacteria to to those uh, uh, bacteria drinks that, that you see advertised. And what they found was... A reduction in stress in people that were taking the, um, the psychobiotic, and in fact, they measured it uh, again, not just on a questionnaire which showed a reduction, but that correlated in some biological measures. What they did was measure cortisol responses in uh, response to a stressor, which is sticking your hand in some ice cold water, and what we normally see is cortisol level rises immediately in everyone. People who are stressed get a slower reduction in cortisol back to normal than people who have lower stress, which get a more immediate reduction. And what they found was a small but statistically significant difference in the groups that were taking these psychobiotic capsules. So there may actually be room for uh, nutrient changes in uh, more ways than just vitamins and minerals. Yeah, I really think it's a fascinating new uh, as area for research and something that I think we've probably in psychiatry have been a bit resistant to, the mm. idea of nutrients and that they affect anything above, above the neck, you know. But it turns out that more and more it seems that it's possible. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Helen Stevens, maternal child health nurse, baby whisperer. Tell us, what exactly do you do, Helen? What, how do you get a baby to sleep like a baby and what does it mean? Wow, how long have you got? Um, well, baby to sleep like a baby is... Uh, it's a weird term, it's isn't it? It's a misnomer. It's, uh, babies don't sleep like... Well, in fact, every time babies sleep, they're sleeping like a baby. It could mean anything. That's yeah, the problem. but it's yeah. It, and it's not mini adult. No, and that's what we tend to work towards. What do I do? I work with an infant mental health focus to supporting families with baby sleep that's causing the family distress. What is it about baby sleep that causes family distress? Uh, the frustration of not being able to get a baby to go to sleep, or uh, a baby unable to roll one sleep cycle into another over time initially everybody expects a baby to be wakeful but they forget that a baby has to evolve 
into being able to sleep like an adult. So, so how does that happen, Helen? What's happening at the biological level? What's happening for that child is that they're, um, they're emerging as a self, as a being, and in such, if they're supported in a way that they are um, developing a sense of they can calm because the world is around them is, is manageable, so they're being regulated, they learn self-regulation. But we've come from a history of a lot of children, a, a lot of um, caregivers have been under the impression that if you can teach a baby to sleep by X, Y and Z, which is usually, we used to be extinction methods, which, you know, don't respond to them, so they learn... What used to be called controlled crying. Well, still comes under the veil of a number of... And and it's anything that's time-based, and it's not... It's not. It's not looking at what's going on for the child. So clock centred rather than yes, infant centred. Yeah, absolutely. And behaviour. The child's behaviour tells us so much. But when you introduce a clock, you no longer look at the child's behaviour the way you would have. And I've been working in this in the. I I was trained in control crying. I worked in that field, and the and the way we've been able to progress from that has just been wonderful. But so so what brought about the change for you? Was there a moment when? when you realise what you've been taught, taught wasn't actually helpful? Or Absolutely. Was it something that evolved over time? What? No, it happened really. It was really uh, the World Congress of Infant Mental Health Conference that was here in Melbourne in 2004. And I was in that conference and they were talking about the wiring of babies' brains and stress and the whole time I was thinking, what we do is wrong. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. And I walked out of there never doing it again. Because I guess if, if if we use a computer analogy, babies' brains need to have the hardware to support the software. Mm. And through our interactions with the baby, we load mm-hmm. the software. Mm-hmm. So if we're trying to load software that isn't supported by mm. the hardware, the program's not going to run. If we don't load the software, the hardware doesn't develop in the right way either. So it's a sort of dance between the hardware and the software, Mm. between the brain biology Mm. and what we teach babies and how we teach babies and how we interact and regulate babies and teach babies to then regulate themselves. And what babies teach us. And I think the best thing that babies can teach us is to stop and look because they do communicate and they communicate quite well. How how can... I remember a conversation I had with someone at um, Medicare when I was trying to claim... um, item number for a therapy session with a mother and baby with the baby and the response I got was how can you do therapy with the baby they can't talk oh well there you go (laughs) they don't this is this is the whole misnomer that that they have they they're growing beings that need interaction and they they don't use words how do they communicate to us around sleep and their needs around sleep that, that maybe we're not so good at, at interpreting? Crying. Cry, we separate babies at sleep time. Separation for a baby is is perceived as a threat, yet as a primate. So that's yet, the baby's experience yes. is that it's a threat. And so our Western world separates babies out into the nursery, beautiful nurseries, so the babies are put in a place of isolation and they cry and then we say there's something wrong with the baby. What they're telling us is that the situation for them is really stressful. So can I ask you a question that arises from, you know, my observation of lots of my friends who have little babies and the fact that if they 
don't separate them out into another room, that they just don't ever get any sleep at all. And that makes them more irritable and less responsive. And so I wonder how you balance those competing needs then. I think what we what we have lost the ability, that's a good question because the we have lost looking at the infant's needs and the parent's needs and what we've become very much is a parent need and I get that. Everybody needs their sleep. But we've lost the support of the parent. So parents don't come from that extended family network where they just run off and have a sleep while someone's cuddling the baby. They're there and often the only carer and they're in isolation. So it's a matter then of helping the parents understand to read the baby and when the baby's ready for sleep, allow them to have some sleep time. Cuddle them off to sleep if they want to, but then to be able to put them down. So, so what cues do you teach parents to actually look at, Helen? How, how would you know that a baby was ready to sleep? I tell parents to go and have a look in the mirror. And when they see themselves looking tired, that's what their baby looks like. Because it's the same, it's the same anatomy, it's the same biology. It's just expressed, like we use words, and babies use gest- their facial gestures, their grimaces, then they'll start to grizzle, they'll go pale, they, they, they get that blank stare that comes and goes, they will start to look... They'll start to get a little bit irritable, they'll get grisly. And if you leave it too long, they're yawning, they're really tired, and before you know it, they're overtired. So so there's an intervention window. Oh, a very and it's a very important one because if you miss it, like anybody who's overtired, babies do the same thing. But but they can't go. What come. do you mean you want to go to sleep? I'm ready to go out now and do the shopping. Yeah. Yeah. How do we get around that? Well, there are times, of course, the baby has to go out and, and be part of the integrated group. However, if the experience of going to sleep is not one that's that, that's associated with a whole heap of negative, like you must go to sleep because it's midday, you've got to go to sleep. And if I don't Again, get you clock. to sleep... Yeah, absolutely. And if I don't get you to sleep, the perception is that if you don't get a young child to go to sleep, a baby to go to sleep when they're young they'll never sleep properly well there's research a really extensive literature review that said that um children who the interventions that were done within the first six months of life to train babies to sleep made no difference to their sleep patterns in the next six months of life so we really babies will evolve into sleep patterns if again we they have different them. hardware different software absolutely and if we support each individual then we're going to be at a, a the babies are going to be able to learn self-regulation to then be able to extend into longer sleep patterns, which is normal, and to be able to separate because they know instinctively they will be supported in that separation. So for the parents, if they can hang in there for those first two to three months, that's the time that the baby is learning that the world around them is supportive of them or it's not. So, so how, do, how do we teach parents to hang in there? How do parents look after themselves during well, that time? Well, I think the first thing to do is expect that it's not going to be sleep time for it. But babies don't normally sleep for four hours in a row. That was when they were on, you know, Truby Kings years ago. Um, it was a, um, a thought that if you fed babies on a heavy cow's milk formula, which was really, really difficult to digest, the babies slept for longer, and they did. And here we are promoting... Um, breastfeeding and you know the pro- the appropriate milk for the, the child's digestion and growth and development and of course the, it it digests really quickly so they wake more frequently as a need to be fed and that is normal 
and the things that we've we've done we've done so many things we've got beautiful prams we've got all sorts of things what helps babies calm what helps them release oxytocin is skin contact Mm. there's so many things we're missing out on it's not just sleep it's the way we we're expecting parents to parent and then to get these outcomes and you know a sleeping through the night the holy grail of sleep and of course you can't blame any parent for wanting no not at all so it's a matter of trying to get it in a in packaged in a way that yep you're going to wake up with a baby you're going to wake up so how then are we going to make it that you survive through that because if you train a baby to go off to sleep you're training them to not not call for you when when they need you and you know, one thing you do one thing during the day. I'm responsive. I'm kind. I'm loving. I care. At night, sorry, close the door. And how does a baby make sense of that? They don't. So what we do then is we 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 undermine their sense of how it all comes together and how does self regulation finally occur? It's through this what I call co-piloting. You know, the parents do it with the child until the child's able to do it for themselves. So so it's a, it's a very different model between getting a baby that that's compliant and a baby that's self-regulating completely different they can superficially look the same at the end point you can have a baby that has become compliant and is sleeping all night but in fact if we measure cortisol levels in those babies which is as i mentioned before is a measure of stress what we find is those babies are sleeping but they have elevated cortisol levels absolutely so they're stressed so what they've been able to do, and that, uh, that um, research I think you're speaking about is one where they were looking at infants from four to ten months of age. So that infants as young as four months of age were able to dissociate their behaviour and their emotional experience, which is an extraordinary thing to be able to do, but to be put in a position where they have to do it. Well, it's a, it's, it's a survival strategy for babies, really, because... Mm course in history the babies that didn't do that would have got gobbled up or mm. threatened in some way if they weren't silent yes but it's not a survival strategy in the society we live in now and it's always a survival strategy that comes at a cost yeah and and i can look i can just hear parents saying but i can't i can't i can't function without sleep and they're right they are completely right and that's why we have to have mechanisms in place to support the parent because by training the baby we're going against all their primal instincts and their development and their mental health development to get them into something that in a years gone past we had a social network that supported the parents to do it so what we're doing now is kind of punishing the baby to fit into what our society is so do you think that we need to change things like paternal um, leave after babies are born to oh, extend do it a I bit. ever. <laughs> don't start me. Is the Pope me. Catholic? Don't, <laughs> don't even start me. I, I want all supporting me. Yeah, so, I mean, we should really think yeah. about this. As a society, yeah. how do we want to structure it so that we can, you know, create healthy people? Yes, look, it was, it was interesting. A year, a year ago, I found myself in this very strange situation for me, actually agreeing with one of Tony Abbott's ideas. <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, which one was that? The, the, the paid, per, paid uh, parental print. leave that I thought was a fantastic idea. In fact, the only criticism I've had is that it didn't go far enough. And it was also, I think, only for mothers. It was uh, Yes, it was that, that it didn't go far enough. But, but the criticism that got in the community... I thought was um, very misguided, very unhelpful. But the focus around the leave wasn't on what the leave was actually for. Mm. 
which was parenting mm. and was so that mothers could care for children and care for themselves and then the other community supports we need to put in place to help them to do that so also helping them with other home supports when they don't have extended family supports so that they can care for themselves and care for their mothers but but it was uh, the closest thing he ever came to having a good idea mm. this comes back a little bit to the idea of built space again doesn't it because yes. there's been more and more developments of um sort of communal housing and quasi communal housing which bring us back to a lot much less sort of uh separated off nuclear family kind of idea about how we want to live so you know maybe in the same way that there are units being built in brunswick without any car spaces we can think about units and other kinds of housing which allow extended family groups or other kinds of networks which are a bit more informal to come together and support people at this point when they need a lot more from each other and in fact extended family groups and um small very small shared communities are the way we've existed for most of human existence this weird paradigm we've got now of the nuclear family is just very strange idea and I, and i think even though we're embedded in it and it feels normal to us it's not it's not going to work and it's not going to last it's the end of society as we know it no it's an evolution of okay. society perhaps the beginning of a society that we don't yet know rather than the end of as we know it uh, as one door closes the other one opens and we are opening many many doors you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3RRR in melbourne australia Dr. Mellis, we're all just about to get up and walk out of the studio and leave you to it in your oh. familiar environment. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> That's a PTSD signal of distress. Yeah, so you can have experienced trauma as well as communicate to us. Well, thank you for the opportunity to actually rework my trauma and revisit it but not be traumatised, which is the paradigm actually of having to return to the re-traumatized moment to become de-traumatized so thank you this session today is de-traumatizing but I, for other reasons happy to help you get the bill mm. <laughs> <laughs> well it'll be a group session or but, yeah. because i was absolutely delighted by the previous segments both from the building of safe spaces and the making of the link uh, both with digestion and the food and also that sleep is actually part of the 24-hour cycle. It's uh, the separation moment from wake to sleep is a transitional space. And for adults, we don't respect transition anymore because we don't even know there is a transition. It's just called multitasking. In fact, it well, is it's not... Well, it's a 24-hour work cycle now. Isn't yeah, it? And, and I belong to that workaholic group mm. and I've paid the price. And I know it affects my digestion, the 3 a.m. wake, which I rationalised as a wonderful creative writing time. The, the ideas that come at 3 a.m. are just nothing like during the daytime. And in many ways, that's not so good, but <laughs> otherwise it's creative. But to the idea of uh, our society needing, and it is undergoing a change, which is called actually a paradigm change, driven in one part by our understanding what is safe and what is not safe. And safety is not really negotiable in the nursery. However, we've never known that when we've registered child behaviour by the clock. And in fact, I love that notion, if you want to know when a baby's tired, look in the mirror as an adult. 
because a mirror doesn't speak, it reflects. So the cues that we get about tiredness are in the face, in the body posture, and the vocalising, let alone the words, but how the words are spoken. If they're monotone and, oh, look, I'm very tired, you're probably already detached. Normally, vocalising should have a rhythm, a tone, a prosody, a musicality. If that's gone, don't even bother looking in the mirror. You're collapsed. Just know it. So the starting point is a degree of self-awareness of the carer, not the baby. If we're exhausted as carers and we're dissociated, we have lost our capacity to attune. So you can only care for a baby if you are caring for yourself. Indeed. and As a doctor, you can only care for a patient if you are caring for yourself. Oh, could you please repeat that? <laughs> As a doctor, you can only care for a patient if you are caring for yourself. <sighs> Music to my ears. And this is called the self-care because we are all in the caring professions placed in a position of vicarious trauma. We pick up on other people's stress and trauma. And if we don't take care of ourselves, we get on the treadmill of being dissociated and working from a dissociated space. That That blank, monotone sort of place you were talking about before. And reach for a prescription pad instead of relying on the oxytocin in the therapeutic relationship. We are in a relationship of attachment and regulation. If we don't provide the oxytocin internal love hormone, if you like, then why impose an external one instead? It's just never going to be as good. Why put in heavy-duty milk when mother's milk is the natural? So I'm not a greenie by any means, Uh, but I am actually for homeostasis and the neurobiology that teaches us what actually is going on in the baby and the mother, baby and the caretaker, that's us as carers of mother-baby couples. And if we, as the carers, are drained and exhausted, don't expect anything of great improvement in the regulation and what is my whole focus here it's called relational trauma now relational trauma is a revolutionary construct introduced in 2001 by a friend and colleague called alan shaw from los angeles and he revolutionized the concept of trauma from over a hundred years when it's an event external war trauma accidents or natural trauma and even man-made trauma like abuse and violent assault. And he actually said, let's look at the delicate, intimate moment between a caregiver and the cared for. And a baby's not a mini-adult. So their window of tolerance, what they can tolerate, is baby scale. And a mother or a carer is attuned to this very, very fine, subtle attunement and resonates up and down. And if a baby's distressed, then the caretaker's role is to down-regulate that baby. If the baby's a bit sort of going out fugued and disconnected, then the caretaker's role is to up-regulate the baby. And to integrate the baby. Well, now, language here 
if you regulate it, the baby's brain will do the integration. You never teach integration. It's inherent. You provide the buffers for the extremes and let baby take care of his or her own integration. So when we're talking about using words like integration, what's actually happening at a biological level? Oh, Thank you. This was not a setup, but what a great question. It's not a setup, but but no. you know, we as professionals use yes. these words. Well, People we're listening. What does this mean? Yes. What's now happening? we're we're in the middle of our own paradigm change, which is very painful for us as specialists or generalists in the mental health, because we now know, for example, just an example of integration. A baby's brain is not yet myelinated. Myelin is that sort of fatty covering of the nerve cells which insulate one nerve from the other. Now, the practical example, if you have a loud noise, and I'll clap now like that, a baby will have a startle reaction, a whole body body response. response. Adults don't. None None of us here actually jumped when I clapped. A baby would have. Part of the reason is their nervous system is not yet myelinated. So it is not even integration or not integration, it's pre-integration. It cannot even get to the level of integrating because the basic biology isn't yet the substrate to integrate. So it doesn't have the hardware to run that integration not software. Yet. That's right, exactly. And so we can't actually expect certain things from a baby or put it the other way, we would expect that reflex. If it is not happening, think there's a hearing disorder straight away infantile deafness because that is something although the baby may pick up the vibrations through their bones and skin however that's an example of how we got to be very cautious about language that's pre-integration and as helen mentioned then the baby evolves as these myelinations happen so toilet training and sphincter control come in at the age of 12 months 15 months and walking toddling is a precursor to walking. Why? Because the long fibres that go to the motor from the motor cortex down, the muscles aren't yet myelinated. So there's a biological substrate of how integration is the outcome. It's the, the, the manifestation of the final common path of cortex, subcortex, and let me introduce a glorious word from Charles Darwin, the pneumogastric nerve. What a gorgeous word. What does <laughs> pneumogastric mean? Pneumo lung, lung gastric, gastric gut. Which is the nerve? The vagus. And in fact, now there's a theory called the polyvagal innovation of the baby, and indeed all of us, which has never been really known. As it was mentioned earlier, that we were trained as professionals who knew about things above the neck. But of course, the polyvagal is pneumo gastric it's below our neck and indeed we're one organism in, in in fact it's interesting as a society we do know about it because there are words in colloquial use that we use all the time when we're frightened we would say oh we're shitting ourselves yes that's a really good example of how the gut and the brain are linked together in trauma or fear situations. Now, indeed, why did that saying come about? It is because the peristaltic movement of the gut under fear and threat loosens sphincter constriction and we lose... Not just we piss ourselves as well as poo ourselves and we let gas and many other things go. 
Now, this might be not the breakfast conversation we should be having, but since we're in the polyvagal syndrome, you know, this is all biology. And so the colloquialisms have got their base in our, what Freud used to call the body ego, is our first ego. It comes from the body language. So the question earlier, how does one know if a baby can't talk? Babies do talk. They They just don't use words. They talk more strongly with their body. And indeed, words are the new kids on the block. Our communication as adults is 70% non-words. So... So radio is a miracle. Integration <laughs> is around how all these different hardware modules, if we can keep using that yes. computer analogy, fit together and then loading the appropriate software to the appropriate module and then how they all link together. Yes. So and that's the integrative part. Outcome. However, indeed, using that metaphor, hardware gets upgraded in IBM or Macs, as do softwares, and you get incompatibility between a new model and a previous model. And so as the infant evolves to toddler, to child, to adolescent, and of course then whole other stuff comes in with a mega upgrade with hormones and pruning of the brain and so on, we really do need to be mindful of the baby's developmental rhythm. Now, if this is catching anyone's imagination, there's a book that is way ahead of its time in the sense that it's published in 2016, inserted in the book. However, we've already got a copy here at Triple R because we're just at the cutting edge. It's It's our back to the future moment on radio. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Communicating Trauma. Clinical Presentations and Interventions with Traumatised Children by Nama Yehuda, N-A-Y-E-H-U-D-A. An extraordinary book dealing with everything I've said is basically in, in, in this book as and, well. And if you're really quick and you want to copy Melissa selling it from his DeLorean out the front <laughs> of the studio... <laughs> And the other book, that's not true. And the other book is why... It's from the back of his DeLorean. <laughs> why the side, don't they have those special... The side, yeah. going doors, yeah. Sorry. I might start a new business, you know. <laughs> why Humans Like to Cry by Michael Trimble, which deals more with adults and crying as a communication. Mm. So I'm appalled there are still people advocating controlled crying. That is actually perpetuating trauma. Because for an infant, crying is the last resort signal of distress. If, if you think about the term, why would you want to control yeah. crying? Oh. I have to say, oh, it hurts. crying is not the last resort of infant's distress. It's when they go cro- quiet after Afterwards. they cry, when they go to the freeze state. Yes. And that's why controlled crying works. Yeah. On that note, we're out of time. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, radiotherapy hour, this uh, hopeful antidote to uh, angry man and um we'll hand you over to the very placid friendly and not at all angry scientists in uh, einstein and gogo la grosse radio pour des grands enfants triple rfm big radio for big kids is that right all oh, right okay You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.